Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. On today's episode, I have a very thoughtful conversation with the architectural historian, curator, writer, and teacher, Sean Anderson. Sean recently became the director of the BARC program at Cornell, where he's also an associate professor. But before this, he was the associate curator in the Department of Architecture and Design at MoMA. While at MoMA, Sean co-organized Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America with Mabel O. Wilson, which opened last year to rave reviews. He also co-curated Tracing Displacement and Shelter in 2016 and Thinking Machines, Art and Design in the Computer Age in 2017. Sean has undergraduate degrees in both architecture and architectural history and completed his PhD in African art history. And this is where we begin this conversation. I was curious about Sean's interest in both architecture and history and how he saw these things fitting together. We talk about the overlap of theory and practice and his own continual desire to design buildings. We also talk about moving into curation and his sort of critical project while he was at MoMA that culminated in many ways in the Reconstruction show. I really appreciated Sean's honesty here uh, in talking about that show and talking about the work he did at MoMA and, and applaud that work that he did during his tenure there and continues to do in different ways now that he's back in academia at Cornell. This is a great conversation that touches on so many different topics that are of interest to me and this show and I assume many of you. And so I'm pretty sure you will enjoy this one as much as I did. If you like Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, if you want to see more of it in the world this year, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details to sign up and to help support the show. Thank you, as always, for your support. And here is my conversation with Sean Anderson. I want to start this conversation going all the way back to the beginning of your education because you have a degree in architecture and the history of architecture that you got at the same time. Is that right? That's that's correct. Uh, I was the first person uh, at Cornell to uh, attempt such a feat, and um, it happened a little bit later in my in the five years um, in which. I had to keep petitioning to be able to take more classes than were required. And uh, in fact, I got the support finally by one of the professors in the history department to uh, under, you know, to, to, to do the two degrees at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was extremely fortunate uh, at a moment when I had the likes of Mark Yarzenbeck and Chris Otto and Mary Woods all there at the same time uh, to to think about the history of architecture and its relationship to architecture design uh, as well. So I have two questions about that. 
um, that may or may not be related. I'm kind of interested, A, in why you were interested in both of those things or why you, you know, why you wanted to kind of pursue, you know, the double major. And then B, which again, may or may not be related, when you were in school, and I realize it's kind of hard to go back and kind of think about intentions or, or motives. Did you, were you interested in being an architect? Uh, you know, did you want to design buildings and build buildings? Or w- was there something about this history that you were kind of feeling, maybe my way in here is somewhere else? I have always wanted to build buildings. Uh, and mm. that, um, I think that idea or that provocation never goes away. Uh, It's something that I think about quite often, in fact, that that history and and, uh, theories of history and and so forth are a uh, a lens or a window through which to understand how one builds and how one thinks about the world in which uh, one builds Mm -hmm. uh, and designs. So, uh, I would say that throughout my undergraduate and, and graduate uh, degrees, uh, I had every intention to be an architect, but I didn't necessarily know what that might look like. I knew that mm. maybe working in a corporate office wasn't the way to go, but I also wasn't sure at that moment, at least in my naive undergraduate years, <laughs> Um, what other possibilities there might be. And mm. uh, when I discovered the work of Diller Scafidio, uh, when mm. it was just two names, uh, that was in my, my second year, I would say, I immediately found in a way the, the, the kinds of architecture or it, the kinds of practices, I would say, that uh, I was most interested in emulating. And, uh, you know, this was also a moment in which, in which Hayduck, uh was still quite central right. to architectural thinking. And, you know, even the likes of the New York Five, they kind mm. of uh, were present. Um, I Certainly they were present within the curriculum uh, at Cornell in their own way. And, but I wasn't sure ever, like, how to be an architect that makes buildings that are also critical or that right, right. In, that embrace um, questions of history um, as we understood them. It's really interesting to hear you say this because I feel the same way. We were talking a little bit before recording about my background. That's kind of how I always felt about graphic design. Also, is that I, you know, I was I was really interested in these sort of alternative design practices, but couldn't really kind of figure out how to do that in in a new way or, or in, a, in a kind of smart way. I guess I'm kind of interested in why that was interesting to you, or why. Wh- you wanted to build buildings, you wanted to design buildings, but you also wanted them to be critical. Where did that sort of criticality come from, that interest in history, that kind of being a part of the discussion and not just, you know, building high rises or apartment buildings, you know, or kind of, you know, corporate headquarters or something like that? Uh, Well, and I think that's exactly where history dovetails with uh, ideas of practice or ideas of how practices can inform uh, larger questions about you know, the world or, or about the ways in which people see the world. Uh, and I would say that you know, 
I had had a long background in theater um, and it sounds, you know, beyond just the the high school musical, but I I went to an arts high school and and we were very much uh, in, we were very much um, part of an ecosystem that allowed for us to take creative writing courses and sculpture courses and jewelry making and metal smithing courses mm. and theater and singing and so forth. Um, and I, I, I think that that period, I was so fortunate to be a part of this school, especially because it's in South Carolina, it's called the Fine Arts Center, it still exists. Mm. It's a very important moment, I think, for for me at that time, at least unconsciously, that one could uh, intersect with many art forms, many art practices, mm. and also begin to create a body of work uh, and work in realms that may not have been comfortable or may not have uh, been exactly the 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 practice that you know we are taught to to do. So uh, I worked in theater quite extensively uh, and I worked in theater throughout my undergraduate uh, years extensively writing, producing, directing, being an actor on the main stage of Cornell Theater. Uh, (laughs) And so all of these, I think all of these uh, aspects came uh, came together uh, in one way or another Again, by looking at the practice of Dillard and Scafidio, I don't want to to focus on them necessarily, but what I saw in their work was the capacity and the potential to create performative spaces, ideas, narratives through architecture, and by extension then that architecture speaking to uh, ideas of how we occupy space or or visualize space. now, the kind of the opposite side of that would be then uh, looking at history very critically, or histories rather, uh, critically. And I would have to say that, that a number of the courses that I was taking at the time around histories of theory, around, mm-hmm. you know, even the German Baroque, mm. started to at least suggest to me that the performativity of architecture and our performance within architecture uh, challenges the very kind of more uh, pragmatic ideas of, you know, how we design or how we build. And, you know, I, I had professors who were very much indebted to Corbusian models and you could find the, these lineages through Corbusier, but I wasn't really interested in Corbusier um, <laughs> at the time. And I went to the AA uh, in London at a moment also of great transition for the school. And it was there, I have to say, that I finally saw the, the, the breadth of what architecture could be and what architecture mm. could speak to. And when I returned from, to Cornell from, from the AA, 
I kind of made it my mission to, to, you know, to challenge the paradigms that had been taught to me at that moment. I'm interested in this sort of deep dive into the history and the theory. And, you know, you, you ultimately went to get a PhD in art history. Um, you spent time in Rome with the Rome Prize. Like you, you like really dove into to the, the sort of writing and criticism and, and theory and history side of this. And I, I, I guess the, the question that I'm struggling to ask is, were you doing this thinking this is influencing how I design or at this point were you thinking you know I am a writer I am a I am a theorist or or was it even like a this is another type of architecture you know that to be a theorist is a type of practice or to be a curator we could you know talk about your time at MoMA in a second too was that was that maybe an alternative practice for you or like how did you kind of think about that in this sort of or did you even see it maybe as a kind of curve into historian theorist? Do you know what I mean? That was like a very convoluted question. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I appreciate these questions because they, they're requiring me to, to kind of retrace my steps in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is that by the time I, I started a PhD, um, I, I hadn't abandoned the notion that I would build, but I had really come to a, a kind of idea that there was so much more that to learn, that there was so much more to see, um, there was so much more to think about. And uh, that sounds rather, you know, grand, uh, as it were, but it I had left India. Uh, I had been practicing as, uh, as an architect in India, in Ahmedabad, while teaching at the same time, uh, teaching history, ironically enough. Um, and I knew that in the transition to, uh, to a PhD program, and again, perhaps naively so, that I could potentially practice and do a PhD at the same time. And... That that was <laughs> made abundantly clear that that was impossible uh, at the time for for me and when I started the the PhD program, but I've always kind of retained this idea that I would love to collaborate with with architects and I have. I started my own office in Sri Lanka uh, when I was uh, teaching in Australia. Um, so I, I coming back now to the academic world, I have to say like the, the desire to design again and to make things again is, is ever present, uh, for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but I would say that to, to your point, I would say that, um, I had always imagined that, that histories, that writing, that curation, that design, uh, and or making were all simultaneous for me that they shouldn't be read as separate they shouldn't be uh, considered as separate that they inform each other uh, in various ways and to that end I would say I also would get in trouble when I started applying for academic positions uh, right. soon after 
completing the PhD because I would apply for design and history positions, right? Mm. And when I would be in interviews for the design positions, they often, more often than not, the interviews would devolve around this question of history versus design. And they would say, well, right. you're, you have a PhD in history, in art history. You can't be a designer. And I would say, why not? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I would get the same on the other side. I would be right. in history interviews and they would say, well, no, you, you have an MR, so you're a designer. Right. I still run into this. I still run into this idea that somehow uh, these degrees that I have, these interests that I have, preclude uh, an ability to to make or preclude an ability to to write and build or you know. And and I say it to students all the time now, which is, um, you can do it all, right? And you should right. do it all, right? It's, I mean, this is so, it's so funny and also like strangely encouraging to hear you say this, that you're still kind of wrestling with this because I mean, we're very similar in this regard and that I, I feel the same way that, you know, I'm not, I'm not like really, a, I'm like a fake historian, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I am a writer and I get, you know, I, I, a writing is a big part of my practice, but I also still very much identify as a designer and to start to carry these different positions make your own self-definitions and the way, you know, potential employers look at you much harder to understand. I just talked to Esther Choi about this a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Esther is a great example. Uh, you know, cause yeah. Yeah. And I, I've talked to many graphic design graduate students who finish an MFA or an MGD program and are like, I feel like I'm less employable now because <laughs> I've just spent the last two years doing all this like weird stuff where before I was just like, you know, making logos or, you know, designing books. Yeah. And so for me, for me, I found that that teaching has been a way that I can kind of hold all of these together. Mm -hmm. And I think of designing a syllabus, both both like the actual visual design of the syllabus, but also the structure of the class and yeah. the way the class is organized as a type of design process. And then I'm bringing in the writing and, and the thinking and the theory there. You worked in academia for a while, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then you were at at MoMA, and I always think curating, I've done very little curating, but it's a space I'm, I'm deeply interested in because that also seems like a way to be both a sort of maker and theorist at the same time. How did you kind of think about this as you've, you know, moved from, from teaching into MoMA? Mm -hmm. Was this a way to start to kind of bring these together in a clearer way for you? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I um, I had reached a point uh, in Sydney where not only was I dissatisfied with uh, the ways in which we were trying to communicate ideas, uh, or I was trying to communicate ideas around architecture um, there uh, in a, at that moment, right, in a quote unquote global sense. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, I, I felt very much uh, almost claustrophobic in the in the administrative role that I had because I was reshaping the curriculum um, that had been around for decades around this question of artistic or spatial practice. 
uh, as it related to uh, architecture uh, mm -hmm. in its broadest sense. And it, it, it set up a whole new paradigm, not only for what I felt like was a, a moribund uh, kind of design, uh, design ideas, but also I think it also challenged what for Sydney and what for Australian architects had been for so long focused on you go to architecture school in order to build, right? And, and then any other things mm -hmm. that you might do um, are are separate from that. So right. um, I applied to, to MoMA uh, by accident, I would say. Um, not, and I say that um, kind of uh, off the cuff, because <laughs> I was applying for academic roles and I saw the position advertised and I had less than a day to put together my materials and, wow. you know, I, I did so and I hit send, not thinking anything of it, really. Um, and so I was very shocked when I, uh, I got the first interview and, and so forth. It, it, to, to fast forward a bit, in fact, what I realized upon arrival at MoMA was that this was probably the first time in my professional life in which all of the ideas, all of the questions that, that I had been thinking about and trying to approach in various ways previously came together. And it was an incredibly joyous moment for me. Uh, it was incredibly um, validating and uh, personally, and also that in the space of curation, one could, in effect, build, design, ask questions, perform, uh, all of these ideas that, um, uh, that I had been, right. you know, involved in suddenly were present and were possible. Had you done much curating before? Had you kind of organized any shows or exhibitions before this? Uh, not in architecture. Uh, I, uh, oh, not, okay. not in architecture, ironically. Um, when I was a PhD student at UCLA, I worked in the Fowler Museum. Again, a kind of mm. serendipitous moment in which uh, I uh, had long been interested in the work of a scholar named uh, Pratapaditya Paul, who is the first um, Indian-born, Calcutta-born scholar of Tibetan art. Uh, and he mm. is perhaps still considered the preeminent scholar of, of Tibetan art, although uh, he has never been to Tibet um, uh, for political huh. reasons, uh, very specific political reasons. And I ended up working in his garage as a kind of... Wow. editorial director. I helped with his archive because he has a huge collection of art as well. Uh, I helped him write several uh, catalogs, worked on exhibitions with him in Chicago. And at the time he was at the Norton Simon in Pasadena. And mm -hmm. it was with him uh, that, that uh, I not only got to then work within a museum setting, but then he very, very kindly, very generous, uh, very generously 
um, said, okay, well, you have to curate a show of, of these works that I have uh, for the Fowler. Mm. And he had, uh, he had given a major gift to the museum and I became the curator of those works. And so that became my first book, which is the title of which was right. not my choice, but um, the exhibition certainly and the writing certainly was. I mean, the the reason the reason that I ask that is because as somebody who is deeply interested in the curatorial process and the idea and interested in in design and the design process and is interested in you know writing and sort of the the theoretical side of this, curating seems like a really interesting way to bring all of those together. And that you're not just writing a text, but you are also working with objects and thinking about the sort of narrative you know, as you, you know, move through a space. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about this move from, you know, or, or transition between writing to curating, where suddenly you were, you know, working with actual objects and kind of thinking about how to make an argument with those objects in space. I ask this question to every curator that I talk to, but how can you talk a little bit about that process or sort of that, that move from, you know, the written word to kind of making an argument in space? Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say that writing is is an essential component uh, to the process, uh, in as much as first being analytical. So one, I think, one has to be extremely familiar with the works uh, or objects that one is working with, in order to assess the why. Why are we uh, Why are we assembling these things together? Uh, in the first place, I think then you also have to be able to write about a, a kind of reflective, in-process set of ideas around, again, why and how. How are we imagining these narratives, these questions, these, these uh, contexts through which to understand this assembly of, of objects or works? And then kind of ultimately, over time, you have then the, you have the ability or capacity to directly respond to the making of the exhibition, to the structuring of an exhibition. And as you, as you right. say, like, what does it mean to uh, move through space with these, these objects and works in confrontation with each other, in mm -hmm. relationship to you as a viewer, uh, as a body. Uh, and what really I think became revelatory for me was that in each kind of phase, if you will, um, writing took on different uh, value, took on different meaning um, and different importance. So you could, for instance, at, at MoMA, you could write an object report about something that you were planning to acquire or planning to show. Those reports go into a database that are, are kept, but that, that writing rarely gets seen unless it's a right. archival, you know, you're recovering writing uh, about that object. Um, but more of the writing that I was doing was wall labels, mm -hmm. section texts, um, which are very hard 
to, to, to construct. Yeah. Um, and then I think I found more excitement, if you will, and more potential in that last part, the reflective part of writing in which uh, you had already decided on what was coming together. You had already, ima- or one had already imagined what this exhibition would look like or act like. Mm-hmm. And it was maybe not a fait accompli, but it was, it was, it, it existed as a more holistic idea uh, uh, that may or may not have reflected the very first set of questions you asked or one asked. I have a couple of questions about MoMA. I want to make sure we talk about your new job <laughs> also, <laughs> no, but I do have a couple of questions. I do have a couple of questions about your time at MoMA. You know, one of your early shows there, it might've been your first, was on displacement, insecurities, tracing displacement and shelter, yeah. kind of about, um, um, and then you did a show that I think was the first show of yours that I saw, which was Thinking Machines, Art and Design in the Computer Age. And then obviously this past year, you, know, you did the, you worked with Mabel O. Wilson on the reconstruction show. Mm-hmm. I'm you know, amongst many other things that you were doing at MoMA, but those were kind of the three big ones that I, I, mm-hmm. you know, had some, some connection to, or, or at least, you know, was familiar with. I'm, what I'm interested in is if you had during your tenure there, did you have a sort of kind of curatorial project or mandate or goal, whether that was set by the institution or by yourself that you wanted to work on or kind of at a post like MoMA with an audience like that, what were the things you were really interested in kind of communicating or bringing to the fore? What was your sort of kind of, you know, big project there that, you know, kind of contain all of these other things? (laughs) Ostensibly, my role uh, as an associate curator uh, in the Department of Architecture and Design was first uh, to be a contemporary looking or, or looking at the mm. contemporary uh, mm. moment or moments. Um, but that was really the only kind of parameters with which I uh, were given. Uh, and mm. I, I knew going in that I had to be open to any and all possibilities. And in fact, that kind of letting go of of preconceived ideas of what MoMA was or, or could be was incredibly important. So I came to the institution with um, two sets of ideas. Um, the first being that any contemporary, uh, any contemporary exhibitions that could or, or should be made should speak to the moment, but be speaking also to the future. Um, mm. And so my work on on refugees, on displacement had been uh, had been the core of what I did uh, in Australia. Um, it was the, the the main gambit of of my writing, my research, um, both uh, independent and with uh, a colleague there named Jennifer Fern. And uh, it was a project that, or a set of projects that came out of the horrific practices that are still going on, by the way, by the Australian government uh, against asylum seekers. 
that mm -hmm. architecture uh, and and say the built environment are deeply implicated by ideas right. around transience, around displacement, around uh, around refugee and humanitarian crises throughout the world. This is very um, problematic for uh, an institution like uh, I worked at at Sydney um, because it spoke to the government, it spoke to uh, political practices that uh, were very much at the fore. But because I'm an American citizen, I was able to visit places like Nauru mm. and Manus Island in Papua New Guinea I could go to Christmas Island. I could go and see these places that were built specifically to imprison asylum seekers and refugees. And, and, that, mm. uh, and it was really the height of, of a moment in uh, Australian politics in which uh, these ideas were coming uh, forward, but Australian uh, citizens were not allowed to see these places. So I, hmm. I felt very much, and I still do, that uh, a curator should be, uh, a curator of architecture in particular, should uh, see the spaces, the, the projects, right. the works, the objects, the buildings, uh, as a means to communicate um, in an exhibition space. So anyway, hmm. I, I, brought, I brought that project or that I set of ideas with me. And it was in the very first meeting I had, uh, I was asked to present an exhibition idea. And that then became insecurities, uh, tracing displacement and shelter. And it happened over the course of around seven months, very, very short period of time, not only to wow. learn yeah. ab about um, museum practices, but also to put together an exhibition uh, for which there was nothing in the collection or very little in the collection um, that could speak to it, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I think with the, the making of that exhibition, what I was starting to see was that if you asked these kinds of questions in a public realm such as MoMA, you could, in effect, change, hopefully, at any scale, um, in other realms. And, and what I saw, I think, with the opening of that exhibition was this desire uh, among architecture schools, in particular, to start thinking about the, the place of humanitarian design or, or the efficacy of humanitarian right. design in the space of architectural practice. Um, but that, you know, and I think it speaks to uh, human rights. I think it speaks yeah. to questions of, of land, of borders, of sovereignty, mm -hmm. of nationhood, and so forth. These are all part, I think, of at that moment, we're part of a, a broader set of ideas that I was very keen to explore, but in other realms and in other time periods as well. So I've never felt bound um, to this contemporary idea, but 
unfortunately, because of the organization of the museum, it was in a way all that I was allowed to 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 look at. Yet, when at the same time that I was finishing uh, with my brilliant colleague Ariel Dion Prosnik um, uh, Insecurities, it was both of our first exhibitions. Um, I started working on thinking machines. Um, again, uh, with another brilliant colleague at the time, Gianpaolo Bianconi. Um, and here it was a moment where I said that art, architecture, and design could be in the same space and that they could speak to each other and that they could have uh, equal value um, intellectually, critically, and, and visually uh, in, the, in the space uh, of the gallery. And I think, I think all along, um, and this is also at, this, uh, at the same time that I'm, I'm also organizing the Young Architects program. So as the sole liaison between uh, these practicing architects and these constructions. So I had this amazing opportunity to, to really um, challenge my skill set. And, and work in as expansive uh, a view of the world as possible. Um, thinking machines was wonderful. It was, and both insecurities and thinking machines were wonderful experiences, again, because of the writing required and mm. also um, the ability to interface with thinkers, uh, artists, scholars, architects, designers, so forth, who in and of themselves I think had long been challenging the paradigms of the disciplines in which they worked. So for Thinking right. Machines, I had the great privilege of working with Tomiko Thiel, who was the principal designer of the Connection Machine. Um, mm -hmm. And she, along with a large group of, of scientists and designers, you know, came up with this magnificent, huge hard drive, which at the time was being sold um, in the world as this supercomputer, right? And right, right. it's a beautiful machine. Uh, but also, I think for uh, myself, I don't want to speak for Gianpaolo, but for myself, um, it represented this idea that maybe we are all thinking machines or that architects uh, in and of themselves and their practices start to emulate or, or are emulated by the machines with which they are working today. So that exhibition ended kind of chronologically, I would say in the eighties, but I, I would argue that it's, and much of the content of that exhibition speaks to where we are today with the digital and the role of computers yeah, for sure. uh, in our world. I remember seeing that show and just just loving that one. By the way, I'm, you. you said something in there that I'm that I'm interested in, and this is a, a perhaps kind of peculiar question. <laughs> um, I'm I'm it, it's interesting, especially thinking about you working on the the Young Architects program and kind of this focus, you know, even if it's a loose focus on the contemporary and. I assume with a mandate like that, there's a certain kind of, you know, having to 
kind of have your head up and be aware of kind of what's going on in the profession at the moment, in the field at the moment, in the world at the moment, mm-hmm. kind of have your finger on the pulse of the issues that people are talking about, the big ideas that are animating architecture and design. Mm-hmm. And that that in some ways might be counter to or, you know, attention with your deep historical background and spending time in archives and museums and kind of, you know, going deep on very specific subjects and even like working on on a show like reconstructions while also working on young architects this sort of balance between the the history and the deep thinking and the writing with also the kind of gaze outward of like okay what's going on what's everybody talking about Mm -hmm. was that true was it like that and and if it was how did you kind of think about both of those sort of uh you know time scales Uh, well, I, I like to think on multiple time scales. I, I, mm-hmm. I find solace in thinking about multiple time <laughs> scales and perhaps that gets me in trouble sometimes, um, not only in, in my exhibitions or in my writing, but also, you know, it, it, it begs the question today of, of how we think about our relationship to the world and, and, and in, in its inverse. And I would say, I think prior to, uh, with your prior question, uh, the other mandate that I made for myself uh, coming to MoMA was to look at its absences, to look at mm. what had been overlooked uh, in terms of larger questions around who is making architecture and where uh, is architecture. Right. And I had, by, by the time that I had uh, come to MoMA, I had lived on, you know, six continents and worked on six, six continents and uh, in various capacities, but suddenly realized that there were so many absences in the narratives that MoMA as an institution and as the first collection of, of architecture and design, of modern architecture and design, uh, hadn't bothered to consider, uh, or if they had, it certainly wasn't present in its exhibition histories. Um, so this idea of absence, I think, is again very present in the ways in which I was thinking uh, and trying to articulate, even with insecurities. If you look at the artists and the architects and designers who are uh, in that exhibition, by and large, they are non-Western. By and large, they mm-hmm. come from backgrounds uh, that they themselves, like Tiffany Chung, uh, was a refugee uh, herself. Um, Rina Kalat uh, is not a refugee, but is a South Asian Indian-born artist. But looking at the histories mm-hmm. of migration and displacement in, in India and in South Asia... So it was incredibly important for me uh, to to register these absences in different ways. Now, mm. at the time I was uh, at the museum was also a great upheaval in terms of the previous president um, and mm-hmm. the so-called Muslim ban. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was quite remarkable for the institution to come together and then uh, make 
these insertions into the permanent collection galleries of artists uh, and architects like Zaha um, that emulated or replicated the, the Muslim ban. And, uh, or I, I don't know if it was called the Muslim ban. It was the, the ban on, on countries right, uh, right, predominantly right, right. Of, of Muslim origin, I should say. Um, so in thinking about and trying to, to uh, you know, understand these absences, you could potentially, or I tried to potentially look at what and who had been left out of contemporary practice, uh, architectural mm -hmm. practice. And what was happening, I, I saw, was not only a turn toward formalism, a different kind of formalism, mm -hmm. a different kind of registration of materiality, but in that, what I wasn't seeing at all was uh, the emergence of or the embrace of of African American and, and Black practitioners, as well as uh, African-based uh, practitioners. And I, I think in my third year at the museum, I decided I was going to go and have a conversation with David Ajay. And... Mm. Uh, David and I have become, I think, fairly close friends, and we talk quite a bit. And uh, what I was seeing, not only in his work, but in uh, then people working uh, on the African continent, uh, was this, on one hand, desire for visibility, but at the same time, a rejection or at least a reluctance to be visible in the systems that had been created right, by right. Western European and, and American ideas. Um, I should say here that my, my PhD is in African art uh, and right, architecture. Right. And so um, the continent um, on, is very close uh, in my thinking, and it is in so much of my work, both in West Africa as well as East Africa and North Africa, has really become the impetus for, um, you know, understanding um, visibility on one hand, and also the desire to make invisible. Um, and I say this. Uh, not only in the context of the long arc of colonialism, which I still think much of the world is uh, dealing with, but also with those systems that begin to frame and reframe who it is that and what it is that we see. Uh, in right, um, right. I'm not sure, Jared, if this <laughs> answers the question, but. Uh, I think that, you know, that is very much background to then the projects that that we were working uh, collaboratively on for the reopening of the museum in 2019. Right. And in that sense, I learned a great deal from my colleagues in other departments who mm. I think in recognizing absence 
had a greater flexibility and, and uh, capacity to show works from these, um, uh, from these artists, from these uh, locations that the architecture and design department hadn't ever made. In a way, it sets up part of what my next question. I want to talk about your new job because because you left MoMA at the beginning of the year and yeah. you're at, you're back at Cornell, um, <laughs> te- you know, teaching director of the of the, the architecture program there. Yeah. I, I have two questions, you know, kind of immediately. A, why do you want to go back to academia? <laughs> and and B, how does the work that you are doing at MoMA, how do you see that continuing in this new position and in this kind of new space and, and kind of, you know, taking it out of the museum back into academia? Do you see a way to kind of continue a lot of this thinking? Well, I will be very honest with you and say that I had no intention to return to, to academia mm-hmm. as much as okay. I always uh, loved teaching um, and being around students. And I was teaching also uh, while I was working at MoMA, which is a great privilege uh, to be able mm-hmm. to share the museum and to create educational programs with, uh, you know, my brilliant colleagues in the education department there, two of which I'm still very much a part of, uh, two online, free online courses um, oh, right. that are, you know, I find great, great um, pleasure and honor to and humble uh, I, I'm humbled when I hear that so many people are able to take those courses and are learning from those courses and um, are able to rethink their own position um, in whatever field they are um, by virtue of, of those courses. So, um, mm-hmm. so this transition back to academia, if you will, um, has been... <laughs> It's been rough. I, I've been because uh, <laughs> I loved working at MoMA, and I but I had to voluntarily leave. Um, it had become an untenable situation, especially around uh, our work with reconstructions. And mm-hmm. Mabel and I talk about it quite frequently uh, about not only was there a, a profound lack of support, I think, for our exhibition. But hmm. the more that we have talked about it, um, it challenged the very core of, of the modern project. And right, right. even without us saying it, right? Even without us yeah. being overt about uh, this 92-year absence of, of Black architects black architects and architecture in the museum even without our saying it the exhibition said it and and i think that many uh in the for many in the leadership that suggested we were trying to undermine the museum uh and that is absolutely not the case of course the exhibition also came uh, at a time when the strike MoMA uh, protests were happening. Mm-hmm. And I think we were, uh, uh, you know, kind of arbitrarily placed in that same kind of uh, reactive right, realm, right. which again, uh, just to make the case here, uh, we were never part of and had any uh, intersection with. So, um, mm-hmm. I just, I found that 
and I, I am still kind of grappling with it actually, is this, the multiple failures of the institution to, to support that exhibition, um, to think about the role of that exhibition in, um, in the department's future, in the museum's future, and, and so forth. So it, it really started to force me to come to terms with, do I stay in a place that I love uh, and that I have many, many colleagues whom I love and love working with? Or do I then leave and try to, to strengthen, amplify, uh, and build upon the questions that um, we yeah. tried to do with, with reconstructions? And so that's where I am. I, I feel like... Uh, and you and I have talked about this a little bit about this role of administration versus, say, scholarship. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm in an administrative role, yes, uh, and it's uh, a kind of again a profound privilege to come back to the United States, having tried for years to work in an educational institution uh, on a, on a permanent basis, I should say while also having learned so much from all of these previous roles uh, that I've had in the world. And yeah. what I see right now is um, the effects of the pandemic uh, very much weighing heavily on our uh, first and second year, and even our third year students, but all students. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think we have to work, um, all institutions, should work with ideas of generosity, gener intellectual generosity, but also just a, a degree of compassion um, with a group of students and with a group of, of people, all of whom, all of us, who have been profoundly affected uh, by the pandemic, by this virus. But it also, I think what the pandemic has brought forward, it certainly did for me uh, and others in, in MoMA, was a kind of x-ray moment. Suddenly we could see institutions uh, for what they have been and what they are and, and the, the, the frailties that, that all institutions, all forms of, of instruction or education um, are at a moment when we as a society, as communities, as individuals are being questioned. Mm. And what's remarkable about Cornell right now, uh, because I'm part of several searches, uh, and I was also part of a, a search um, uh, that allowed me to, to come to Ithaca, um, was and is, again, this return to who is it that we imagine being architects? And that who is so crucial uh, to not only the architects, the practitioners that we eventually will send out into the world, but also to ask ourselves, like, who are we to... Uh, or at least I'm asking myself, who am I to um, ask 
these questions of, of students and, and faculty alike. It's an incredible privilege to be in this position uh, that on one hand, you are forecasting and structuring and imagining uh, a future, uh, a future curriculum, ways of, of working through pedagogy. Um, it's almost as if we are, uh, you know, we're in the proto phase of a future yeah. exhibition, right? Um, yeah. I yeah. see it as like laying the groundwork for, for future practice. And, and in that regard, I would say it's a, it's a great pleasure and, and, a, but a, a huge challenge to kind of not only, I, I wouldn't say retrace my steps, but to ask ask questions that are almost adjacent to the questions that I was asking uh, mm -hmm. at the museum. Um, mm -hmm. And what I would say just, you know, in regard to, to exhibition making is exhibitions are ephemeral. They are designed, they are built, they are considered, they are then made, observed, experienced, and then they disappear. Right. And what we have the ability to do or what we had the ability to do uh, at the museum is to say, what is the afterlife of an exhibition like Reconstructions? Mm. And, you know, for that, I am, will always be humbled and always be profoundly just impressed, for lack of a better word, um, by the formation of the Black Reconstruction Collective uh, and the work that they will do and continue to do um, as a space of advocacy, as a space of thinking, um, but also of this kind of precarious, if you will, visibility. Uh, and so what I advocate for students is, first of all, to not take these paradigms to not take these structures as a given and mm -hmm. to challenge themselves and to challenge the work that they are doing and that they hope to do um, has that, that there, there are no solutions per se in architecture mm. right now. Right. But there are right. really uh, remarkable ways that communities, that individuals are thinking around the world about what architecture is and what architecture can mean. Yeah, yeah. I I love that. Sean, you set up like a dozen other questions that I could <laughs> could ask you now now from that, but I think that's a really nice please, please. it's a really nice way to 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 wrap this up. So I'm going to ask you the last question that that I used to end all of these. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. <laughs> you know, I um I have to relearn how to read. <laughs> uh, and I've said this for quite some time. Uh at MoMA, I was reading more um, literature rather than mm -hmm. history uh, because I found that the narratives and the spaces that are constructed and imagined in literature 
are far more profound than those often that um, that that scholarship can indicate or criticism can mm. indicate. I'm not disparaging scholarship or, or criticism in that regard, but right, right. Uh, you know, in preparation for uh, reconstructions, which happened over you know three and a half years, uh, I was reading quite a bit of of literature, and I was reading, I, I you know, profoundly influenced by by writing by Saidiya Hartman by uh, Toni Morrison. Toni, in fact, uh, was to write the foreword for our exhibition book, our, oh. our field guide, uh, and then, of course, passed away, um, right. unfortunately. And you know, But I was reading also a lot of historical discourses that don't necessarily speak to architecture, because at the time that we were preparing uh, the exhibition, there were very few. So mm -hmm. you have to look to alternative sources. You have to look to other ways of imagining and thinking um, to inform what it is that that we're asking, you know, what we're hoping to ask to make. So what am I reading right now? I am reading, if I, if I were to look at my desk as I speak, because I'm writing two essays right now for two artists who I profoundly admire. Um, mm. I am looking at uh, Sufi texts from the 18th century. I am looking at old Deleuze, if you can imagine mm. that, and I am not a huge <laughs> fan. Uh, and I am reading <laughs> Borges. Wow. That's a good collection, though. That's uh, a nice mix. It sounds like you're doing a good job relearning how to read. Well, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And uh, I, I would love to say that I could put away email for a few hours every day and, and just read. Uh, and that is my yeah. ambition. You and me both. So I would just say, too, that I, I read not only for for trying to imagine new spaces and i had always wanted i've always wanted to also write fiction by the way and mm. uh, oh interesting people like leslie loco also a, a dear friend yeah. uh, and mentor and mabel both of whom write fiction as right this, right um this practice this parallel practice for thinking about the possible thinking about the potential is really of, of great interest to me. So maybe yeah. I will sit down and write a novel one day. I love that. When when you do, uh, we should continue this conversation. I feel like there is so much more I could talk to you about. I enjoyed this so much. Uh, Sean, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. I, I would love to return one day. This episode was recorded on October 29th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Bargasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>